Hello, welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about health, politics, and policy. I'm your host, Jake Williams. If you're rich, research shows that you have a pretty good chance at living a long life no matter where you live. If you're low income, on the other hand, where you live really matters, as some cities have better economic, social, and public health policy than others, and there's evidence that these policies help account for the wide discrepancies that we see in life expectancy in cities across America. This is important context for my conversation today with Shelley Hearn. She is president of City Health. City Health advances a package of evidence-based policy solutions aimed at helping people live longer, better lives in vibrant, prosperous communities. City Health regularly evaluates cities on the number and strength of their policies, and they do that using a metal system. For example, the city in which I'm recording this podcast, Denver, is rated as bronze. For more about these policies and how and why City Health advances them, let's get right to my conversation with Shelley Hearn. Shelley Hearn, welcome. Thanks, Jake, for having me. Okay, so you are president of City Health, and we're going to dive into what you do. But before we do that, what is the origin story of City Health? Well, City Health got birthed by the De Beaumont Foundation, which is a small but mighty foundation looking at how to strengthen some of the basic public health protections that are out there to really assure that everyone has the healthiest opportunity for a good, thriving life. And that's really what City Health is all about. They had done the research, spent many years out there looking at policies can sometimes be the biggest difference maker in whether or not someone has a good chance right from the start to have uh, the healthiest, longest quality life possible. And that's where they put together this concept of how do you get the cities in this country to have the best policies on the books so their people have the best shot? So what can cities do that perhaps states or the federal government cannot do? Well, sometimes cities are just really focused on the basics. You know, they, they really uh, are not always involved in some of the uh, mudslinging politics, but really in the basics of how do you make sure your roads are uh, running properly and your buses are on time and your schools are open and they're teaching your kids well and that, uh, you know, really kind of the fundamentals of what life is all about. Cities are focused in on, on those basics uh, and are, are places where what we've seen that sometimes they're the best innovations, best opportunities, best opportunity to work across party lines to get the job done to make sure that policies are in place that um, really make sense, that uh, data shows they work, uh, they can help out everybody, they don't hurt anyone. And that's why we've focused our attention on what the cities can do to create a healthier environment. A lot of attention has been paid recently to um, the plight of many Americans health-wise in rural areas. Why? direct resources to cities versus those other areas outside cities? Well, it's not an either or, and policies can help everybody. But what we've done is really start uh, where the most people are 
and sometimes where the data is strongest uh, and the opportunities are great. And again, to that point, cities are innovators. And if it can work there, then a lot of these issues can ripple out across the country. Uh, for instance, the issue of raising the tobacco age from 18 to 21 doesn't matter what zip code you're in. doesn't matter if you're um, a kid out in the farm or in a small, small rural area or in a big city. Getting exposure to nicotine uh, before you turn 21 is, is, uh, is, a, is a pathway down to a really poor quality of health. It, it, once you're addicted, uh, it makes it really tough to stop from tobacco exposure uh, other chemical exposure. So that's a policy that if you can get it in place in the cities, if you get it in place in states, you're going to lift all boats. And that certainly is, is the hope of City Health. So City Health uses nine policies on which they rank cities. I'm going to list those nine right now. You mentioned the first one, Tobacco 21, that is raising the um, age of sale for tobacco products to uh, 21. There's earned sick leave. There's high quality universal pre-K, affordable housing, complete streets, that is uh, walking, biking, public transit, uh, alcohol sales control, smoke-free indoor air, food safety and restaurant inspection rating. So that is, for example, if you go to, uh, I think California is the last state I've been in, where um, you can see a, a, a visible rating as a customer at a restaurant um, that tells you if they passed their health inspection, for example. Um, and then finally, healthy food procurement. So how did you come up with these specific nine priorities? Well, we actually were trying to get 10. Uh, what we were doing is looking at some of the most critical public health issues that this country is facing. So ranging from the opioid epidemic and public safety issues to education and housing. And those might not seem right off the bat like health issues, but what we've found, what the evidence has shown over a number of years, is that there are really core areas that drive whether or not you're going to have a healthy uh, Life. If you're going to have economic opportunities to put a roof over your family's head or make sure they're eating good foods. But things like education, housing are drivers of health. And, and that you have to look at what are those critical areas that influence so much of the impacts of health. Otherwise, just making sure someone has health insurance isn't going to do the job. You've got to make sure uh, that they do have uh, roads that are uh, safe to either walk on, uh, get to that doctor's office, or get to a grocery store where they can get healthy foods, um, that kids are getting a good education because that actually shows that it puts you on a pathway of incredibly good health opportunities. A poor education can put you behind the eight ball. So we took a look at where's the best data on what policies in each of these key determinants and drivers of health would make the biggest difference that a kid in a city, uh, uh, an adult growing up 
uh, living, working, playing, praying, whatever you're doing in that city, that it creates an environment that you got the best shot for health. So we looked in education. And what did it tell you? The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and many other scientists and researchers uh, had determined that a quality, uh, highly accessible pre-kindergarten program is one of the best investments that you can make to assure that a kid has the best uh, track to a good, healthy life. There, there are many parts in that, but essentially, if you have a good pre-K program, you're going to see increased uh, graduation rates by kids uh, from high school. You're going to see lower rates of crime. You're going to see less teenage pregnancy. Uh, the list goes on and on of incredible, important outcomes if you just give those kids a really good quality chance right from the beginning. So you've been describing the impact of these policies, and both you and I know that the research shows that while healthcare is certainly important, these social, economic, and public health policies actually play a greater role in determining uh, someone's lifespan. When you engage um, mayoral administrations or city councils around America, do they grasp that concept? Do they, um, you know, latch on uh, or buy into the idea that these are policies that can um, legitimately improve the quality and lengths of life, even uh, uh, to a greater extent than an improved healthcare system would? Or is that really not even part of the cell? You know, it's a it's a great question. We have some of mayors who have health as one of their top priorities, who have connected those dots. But in general, you know, many of the leaders in city environments, they've got a lot of issues coming at them. Uh, there are a lot of different needs, a lot of different problems, a lot of fires that they're fighting. Uh, and that health, while important, may not always be in the front seat with them. But if you look at the policies that we're, we're putting here, a lot of them actually overlap with other priorities that city leaders have. So, uh, for instance, the issue of complete streets, which is looking at assuring that regardless of your age or your income, where you live, that you've got uh, safe modes of transportation for walking, biking, uh, taking mass transit. Well. In some cities, that's a really top issue in terms of what they're doing with transit. And so building in this policy is a great opportunity to dovetail what they do. At the end of the day, we looked at policies that you could explain to people and may help them understand that their health implications. But for the most part, our policies did not have big economic price tags for the cities. And that was an important element of the, of the sale. The other is, uh, according to a lot of the research and uh, polling that we did with city leaders, they really do care that there are not equal opportunities for health with all of their residents. They know there are differences from one community to another, that uh, they're not always having the, the same um, longevity. They're not living as long. They have more uh, diseases in some neighborhoods. That, that's something that is on people's radar screens. And in fact, how we selected many of these policies 
uh, were informed by what what could create some of those again black blanket opportunities for a fair, healthy living opportunity for everyone. You use a metal system to rank cities on these nine policies. How does that work? Well, doesn't everyone want the gold medal? And that's certainly what we're hoping for our, our mayors, our city council members. We, we want them to be incentivized to put as many of these policies in place. And right now, we, we give a gold medal to the city leaders if they've achieved gold in at least five of those policy areas. Then they get to wear that around their neck. You get a silver medal if you have five medals that are either gold or silver. And then to get a bronze, you just have to have four medals. We hope over time that we're going to be adding more policies, uh, having tougher criteria, uh, having to earn more medals in more of these policy areas. But right now, what we have is the basic set of policies that a, a city should have. And we're still a long ways from having the majority of cities uh, getting, getting gold. So there's a lot of work ahead, but at least we've created a roadmap on how we get every country or every city in this country to gold. Okay, so who are some of the best and who are some of the worst? It's a real mix and match out there. Uh, you know, we're seeing innovation, uh, creativity, and a recognition that health uh, can be improved through policies. So we've we have cities um, that have gotten gold. Uh, are places like Chicago, uh, like L.A., New York, but it's not just the big cities. Uh, we had San Jose as a gold medal winner, and also Boston. Uh, one of the smaller cities. Importantly, we're seeing a number of cities out there who don't have any medals, uh, but their leadership has recognized that policies can be a prescription for good health. And we've been awarding recently leadership medals to those cities where uh, the leaders have uh, made a commitment to try to get their city to gold in a few in a few years, so we've seen extraordinary progress taking place uh, out there in the heartland, places like San Antonio, Louisville, Kansas City, uh, making amazing progress. And really, again, because the the policymakers, this is something they can control. Uh, it's not always fair when you get ranked on what the actual health outcomes are. Of, of your residents, but what is fair is to score you on what are the policies and programs that you're putting in place that you can make a decision on um, that will give everyone that chance for a gold medal quality of health. So why do people, as the evidence uh, continues to indicate, tend to live longer in big, dense cities? It's not always the simplest equation, but many of the contributing factors come down to things like uh, your economic security, 
the level of education that you've had and the quality of that education. Uh, it's, again, where some of these policies that we're putting in place can assure that you're reducing your uh, exposures to violent crime, uh, that you're creating safer walk environments, uh, that you're having greater economic security. Those are actually all factors that can contribute significantly to your health outcome. It's not, it's not just genes, and it's certainly not genes alone. It's about the environment that you live in. And the more that we can put in place some of those basics to assure that everyone uh, has that opportunity for a good, healthy, thriving life, that's how you're going to improve longevity. I mean, if you look at cities, um, by and large, people who live in cities, as an average, tend to have more income. However, there's also a lot of evidence that some of the policies that we're talking about here in the public health, social and economic realms um, have the ability to mitigate the effects of income inequality, which are also most pronounced in cities. So just to put some stats to this, the top 1% um, of Americans economically, the men get to live 15 years longer than the poorest 1% of men. For women, that same gap is about 10 years. However, when you uh, dig into these cities, you can see that there are pronounced differences in length of life. For example, in New York City or San Jose, uh, this is a race-adjusted figure for low-income residents. The average length of life is 79 and a half years old, but it is five years shorter for that same group of folks in Indianapolis or Detroit. And so I'm not saying that, um, you know, we shouldn't address income inequality by any means, but it does seem that these policies have a way of mitigating the effects of income inequality when it comes to life expectancy uh, that you see in other areas. Is, it, is this something that, that you have found as a you know, motivation or impetus to, to do this sort of work? Well, the data that you just discussed was absolutely a motivator and part of the genesis of creating City Health. Because some of the work that you were citing came out of the Stanford research, looking at some of the correlations on longevity uh, in cities and economics. And it found that individuals who were in the lowest quartile of income level had higher uh, you know, lived longer when they were in cities where there was greater wealth and it's believed greater numbers of policies in place that provided, uh, again, a better, healthier uh, environment for everybody. And as you take a look at uh, those distinctions, where you see is some of those cities where uh, those on lower on the income level can fare better health-wise, they are the ones that are scoring better in our policy areas. Um, you're seeing the quality 
pre-K programs. You're seeing um, gold medals in a number of areas. Um, you certainly see that in so many of the California cities where they've uh, put in place the, the first areas to put in tobacco-free, smoke-free indoor air laws that put in the Tobacco 21, where you got this blanket coverage. And there's more research that needs to be done on this. We've not been able to tease out all the specificity. But again, the totality of this package that we're talking about of policies and where they address in each of these critical areas of housing, education, public safety, uh, those are all key contributors to creating uh, an improved and a little bit more equitable opportunities for good health. So I have a question about where public health should begin and end vis-a-vis income inequality. As we just covered, these policies Um, appear to be able to mitigate the negative impacts of income inequality. Um, But should public health stay focused on this mitigation path? Or do you think that public health interests should tackle income inequality more directly, not necessarily on a left-right ideological grounds, but from a public health perspective, um, pursuing campaigns that could reduce the gap between the rich and poor uh, in the interest of improving and saving lives? Where I think public health does well and can do even better is engaging in the policymaking world where we're able to validate that health has an impact from those policies and be a truth teller in terms of uh, what that can mean in overall public health, public community, uh, population health. In general, as a field, uh, we are not engaged with policymakers. We haven't been trained in the area of policy. Uh, and we're, we're in sometimes uh, a little bit of old world that uh, science and policy are two different spheres. And I think when you talk public health, there's a responsibility of taking that science and making it public so that it really does impact health and that we in fact should be and need to be more that nexus between science and policymaking. And that's uh, uh, much of, of, I think, what city health reflects that first and foremost, we had to have clear evidence on uh, the policies that were identified that they did have a health impact. And it's where we drew most of our selections were from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, from the Academy of Medicine, and from previous work that had been done by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Science has to come first. where then public health gets involved and what policies is where uh, where there is a role for health in those policies, that's where we should be. I think that's where we're most effective. Uh, we need to learn to be better engaged in translating our science uh, uh, to the public, to the policymakers, to the press. Uh, and we have to be there as a trusted core uh, the public does 
trust their doctors, their nurses, uh, their healthcare workers, their public health officials. Uh, and trust is a hard thing to find these days. And so uh, it's paramount that we keep being evidence-based, but we also keep being focused that we're there for the public first. Cities have also become um, a forum for public policy change to address climate change, um, especially since uh, the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Accords. And also the American Public Health Association has called climate change um, the number one uh, public health issue in America. Have you given thought to how city health might engage on uh, from a public health perspective, climate change at the city level? We are taking a very serious look at that issue right now. We have been joined by Kaiser Permanente uh, as a national partner for city health. And as an organization, uh, one of their first requests is asked us to take a look at our existing policy package and see about expanding and including uh, where the evidence says a city can make a difference in this issue of sustainability, um, which would uh, very much with an eye towards climate change. So we are actually in that process right now of reviewing the uh, evidence-based set of policies out there that could have an impact on climate, could improve environmental um, conditions. So I, I'm hoping that in 2021, we will have that on the books and be scoring and incentivizing cities. Um, it is a critical issue and one that we can't overlook, but uh, um, I hope to come back and uh, show how City Health is doing that work, not only from our scoring, but also working in concert with a number of key groups out there um, who are also trying to focus in on cities as the epicenter of change today. And are there any other frontiers that you're considering adding to this list of policies? I mentioned earlier, Jake, in the podcast that we really wanted to have 10 policies. Uh, we have nine. And the 10th had been reserved for a policy to address upstream how to best tackle and reduce the serious challenge today of the opioid epidemic, substance abuse, and mental health. Um, this has been one of the most challenging and, to be honest, uh, frustrating elements uh, of our work in that we are at a point with substance abuse epidemic where we need greater access to treatment, Greater, greater attention uh, on many of the conditions that um, are forcing and uh, uh, creating uh, this crisis. But there's not a clear answer of an upstream policy that can prevent uh, these issues. Right now, uh, our, our work and our findings have been around the need again for improving access, getting better treatment, getting better solutions out there. But I, I hope that we can come back uh, in the near future. And it is certainly a, uh, a charge that we have put out to many uh, in, our, in our efforts to try to identify uh, the innovations that cities are doing 
uh, is anyone having success on the prevention side? And that's something that we're, we're very much uh, on the lookout for. Okay, so among the nine policies, I, th- there are, there's one here that I feel like people don't perhaps know enough about, and that's alcohol sales control. Can you tell me more about that? Well, it might be one of the best-kept secrets out there on a policy that would make an extraordinary difference in a community. But there are some communities that already know, know about this one. You know, in many of our cities, there's a great worry, great concern for reason on public safety. Uh, we've seen in some places the challenges uh, of murder rates, violent crime, domestic abuse motor vehicle accidents. And one of the best ways across the board to prevent and reduce uh, those rates of violence is to better regulate the sales of alcohol in your cities. And what the data has shown is that if you prevent high concentrations, really dense areas of high volume sales. So a corner liquor store on all four corners of a street, the cops in the city will tell you that's where your crime rates start. Uh, They know it. And a lot of the community groups know it, but it has been very difficult and very challenging to put in some of the zoning restrictions that limit the number of outlets or on the flip side, just ensure that better protections are in place as part of those stores being there. Uh, working streetlights, uh, anti-loitering laws that actually are enforced. Doing things to cr- change the conditions of these high volume alcohol sales areas are one of the most effective ways to create a safer, uh, violent-free zones for your, for your communities. Shelly Hearn, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jake. Uh, it was wonderful talking with you. There it is. Thanks again to Shelly Hearn for doing the interview. You can find out more about City Health at cityhealth.org. And I've got a special guest in the podcast studio today that can provide some live feedback on how I've done I have my daughter here who is in the office due to an illness. I'm not, I guess I'm not practicing good public health policy by bringing an infected kid into my workplace, but um, Riley, how did I do? Pretty good. It took you like a billion times though. Uh, you're revealing the secrets of how it takes me a billion, t- billion takes to actually get my words right because I'm not very good at this. Yeah, kind of. Mm. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, That's a review of one. If you want to review the podcast, uh, please do so. Give us five stars and subscribe if you haven't already so you can know what we're up to each and every week. All right. I'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.